The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, a very warm welcome to Squawk Box. So with myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. So global equities uh, sharply sell off after central banks in the US and Europe raise rates and warn of more to come. With all three US majors and the stock 600 in Europe closing at their lowest levels since November. The European Central Bank and the Bank of England both lifting rates by 50 basis points and stressing that whilst they may slow the pace of hikes, rate increases will continue in the new year. This is not a pivot. We're not slowing down. We're in for the long game. We had to raise interest rates to date because we see that risk as really quite pronounced. Uh, European leaders wrapping up their final summit of the year in Brussels, agreeing on a fresh aid deal for Ukraine and addressing the US Inflation Act. But the bloc remains shaken as a graft scandal engulfs the EU Parliament. And the CEO of shipping giant MSE, Soren Toft, tells CNBC exclusively the sector is well poised for the new year as it expects imports and exports out of China to recover strongly as the country reopens and drops its zero COVID policies. With the new measures we hear from China, I think it's good news also for moving goods into China because the Chinese consumers, the 1.4 billion, obviously have suppressed their own demand a little bit. All right, everybody, you got me for two hours, then you'll get Arabi there's a bit of cavalry at eight. So look, I, I, I learned a new phrase today, and I like to learn new stuff, even though I'm an old dog. I, tr- I try and learn the odd new trick. And I learned the phrase stacking producer on Squawk. Yeah, because I've never heard of it before. Uh, and we have three excellent producers who rotate on a weekly basis, uh, who are at the moment leading on Squawk. In fact, there's four with Katie away, who's in New Zealand at the moment. So you've got Brett, Mike, and David at the moment. David is the stacking producer, and it got me thinking about stacking. And of course, stacking in Squawk terms means building the rundown. But stacking in terms of crises for these markets uh, is something the market's not very good at because it wants to concentrate on one issue at a time. But when it gets a whole stack of issues it's concerned about, then the market gets all very confused and you get this as well because the stack of crises at the moment, let's, let's go through it. You started off the start of the week worrying about CPI and yet the CPI was fine. There was nothing wrong with the CPI data if you wanted to see an elongation of the rally. But then the next crisis came along, stacked up in the queue there. And it was the fact that the central bank said a little bit higher for longer as well. And the market was like, hang on a second, we thought we were right. Well, market might ultimately be right in the second half of next year. But at the moment, the Fed is saying 5.1. 5 to 5.25. That is longer than many in the market wanted because they're still clinging on desperately to the hope of a pivot as well, which ain't coming yet, or certainly no line of rhetoric from um, the Federal Reserve about that yet. And then the third cute part of the stack as well was the retail sales. And suddenly, suddenly the market started thinking, hang on a second, if CPI comes off, and if we do get what we want in terms uh, of the central bank action uh, turning some form of pivot, Oh, oh, they might be doing it because there's a recession. And unfortunately, the retail sales remain very volatile as well. So great October figures matched by disappointing November figures as well. So you had CPI, then rates, and then recession fears. And the trouble is, 
You can't get past any of those at the moment. And that's what the market's fed up about. The market can't get past any one of those to concentrate on the next one in the slack. So thank you, young David, for giving me uh, a new line at the top of the show. So welcome, he says. Yeah, you will say that in two hours' time. You'll be fed up with me. Right, so we were down across the board on the major US indices. I want to look at technology because, look, 3.2% lower for the NASDAQ. And I've already told you in the headlines that we saw a bit of a drubbing. Uh, great stat also from my production team this morning that the NASDAQ has had... A at least 84, has had 84, at least 2% moves up or down and more uh, on the year. That is the most we've seen in 20 years. That is the most we've seen. Forget about the great financial crisis, the 2008, 2009. We haven't seen any more volatile moves in terms of 2% plus or minus in a calendar year this century, since 2002. I think that's fascinating. Right, Apple down 4.7%. I don't know what's going on. Oh, Twitter, we don't even need that anymore, do we, guys? Uh, Microsoft down 3.2%. Netflix, look at that. <laughs> Did you watch Harry and Meghan? I haven't yet. I've just seen the headlines. Oh, dear. There we go. Uh, nothing for me to say about that. Minus 8.6%. Uh, Amazon down 3.4%. Again, the retail sales are concerned. Meta will worry about its advertising revenues. It will worry about all that, of course, uh, as we see a lessening economy. I wanted to show the week today on the Dow. Uh, and we put this in because, as I say, it was a week that started with so much hope. And we got to a level where, wow, do you remember the futures before the CPI? That was a long while ago for you all now, wasn't it? The, the futures, when we'd had the CPI print, were up 700 points. And the Dow was kind of there. And then we came off aggressively. And then we didn't like what we heard about the summary of economic projections. So we came down again. And we didn't like what we saw in terms of the volatile series and the retail. So we came down again. But do you know, for the week, the Dow's only down 0.8%. It's not bad, considering everything you've been disappointed about there. Right, what are the Treasuries doing? Let's have a quick look at that as well. I think 3.45. So look, we had a 3.6 handle early in the week. We've now got a 3.848 because despite the fact that you're talking about higher for longer on interest rates, it's the recessionary concerns that's getting people worried a little bit, I guess. 3.48 is where we're trading there. Although your surprise is amazing to me sometimes in market world because I saw so many senior investment bank economists reports that said, do you know what? We think we're already going to go to a 5 to 5.25% range on the summary in terms of where we think we're going to be in rates at the end of 2023 but you were still surprised nonetheless anyway uh right dollar crosses let's have a look at this lots going on here we had the pound with a 124 handle but now it's gone down to 122 despite the fact that and the same with the euro 106.45 122 both central banks talking the talk having their 50 basis point hikes and i'll tell you one more thing we we had a slight confusion in the first two headlines because we were saying steepening the pace of hikes uh, but also uh, having lower levels uh, than previously uh, we hiked and that's true they're both true we've gone from 75 to 50 basis point hikes but the fact is the market wanted to see some little sign of lessening of commitment. They might have seen some of it in the 6-3 split at the MPC, but we can come to that a little bit later on. Dollar yen trading 137, dollar yuan 6.9666. That's not ominous. <laughs> Let's move on to the Asian indices and where they're currently trading. 1.9% uh, lower for the Nikkei. Actually, the Hang Seng is up, and I will come to that, I promise you, later on, because that is a very interesting story of why we're seeing a little bit of support in some of those Hang Seng names, possibly some of those tech names. There you go, I'm giving you a little bit of an insight. Uh, Shanghai Composite down four temps. ASX 200 down eight temps of 1%. European opening calls, did we absorb all the declines from yesterday? It looks like we did because the European markets got a pummeling yesterday. The DAX was down 3.3%, the CAC down... 
3.2%. Um, for the week, the DAX is now down 2.3%. By the way, I didn't tell you about the VIX. It did finally rally back up to 23, but it will get an absolute pummeling today because you've got three days decay ahead of the weekend as well. And plus, traders do not like to hold premium over the Christmas period as well. They see them as dead days where it's just not worth holding. So just bear that in mind as well. Tricky period if you're holding premium. <clears throat> oh, we've got the European close. We'll show you that very quickly. I don't know. It just says European close on my screen, Will. Oh, there you go. <laughs> thanks, thanks very much indeed for that. And I'll show you the European bond yields as well, where they're trading on the back of the uh, moves we saw yesterday. Have we got them? Right, okay. There we go. There's the European yields. Um, trading 2.08 on the 10-year bonds, 2.6 on the 10-year uh, French paper and the Italian paper. And look at that. 4.16. Again, is, uh, yeah, have a little think about that Italian data. Maybe slightly lower than that, actually. Right, okay, so let's move on. Lots going on. The ECB hiked its key rates by 50 basis points. As Madame Lagarde warned that the central bank was no, has longer to go uh, than some of its international peers. I think that's, that's fair to say, isn't it? The governing council increased its inflation forecast for the next two years and outline plans to reduce its balance sheet. See, there was a, there was a triple whammy, as, uh, as my friends at Goldman's pointed out as well. So you had the rate hike, higher for longer, and it was the APP balance sheet shrinking, which market was like, whoa, really? 8 March, you're going to do that? Okay, fair enough. Saying it would start selling down its bond holdings from the APP, Asset Purchase Programme, in March next year, at a rate of 15 billion euros per month. Now, responding to questions from our very own Annetta, that's where we are, we're everywhere. Uh, Lagarde said the ECB would be persistent in clamping down on inflation. Significant rise at a steady pace means that we should expect to raise interest rates at a 50 basis point pace for a period of time. The second element that you have in this paragraph is the reference to a steady pace. So it's significant and it has to be a steady pace, which means that we have made progress over the course of the last few months, but we have more ground to cover. We have longer to go, and we are in for a long game. I want to put a nod out to our magnificent graphics team who put all this together, but I was standing on the wrong side of the wall. It's a bit like Panto that goes wrong, isn't it? So look, so they, they put together the fact that March 2023, the APP, 15 billion euros is going to happen. We had a uh, 50 basis point hike as well. And it was Madame Lagarde I was talking about, not this handsome chap here. Uh, well, that's Andrew Bailey. Anyway, so they also put rates up by 50 basis points over at the Bank of England and pledged to continue responding forcefully in its fight against inflation. It's almost as if we've got coordinated central bank action around the world, isn't it? Almost as if. Uh, MPC members voted uh, for the increase by 6-3. I think there was a couple of holders at 3% actually, which is very interesting, which takes the rate in the UK now to 3.5%. That is the highest level in 14 years. Now, the Bank of England Governor, Andrew Bailey, said the outlook warranted a strong move. We think we've seen possibly this week, you know, the first glimmer that with the figures that were released this week, that it's not only beginning to come down, but it was a little bit below where we thought it would be. And that's obviously very good news, but there's a long way to go. And there is, a, and we expect that to happen, by the way. We expect inflation to start falling more rapidly, probably from the late spring onwards. But there is a risk that it won't happen in that way, particularly because the 
labour market and labour supply in this country is so tight. And that's why really we had to raise interest rates today, because we see that risk as really quite pronounced. I genuinely say this to you hand on heart. I don't think there's a dull day at the moment. I don't think we had a dull day this year. I think it's been fascinating. I don't think it's been dull for a long time. And I know someone who absolutely agrees with me because he just said it off camera. Is Eric Norland, who's executive director and senior economist at the CME Group. Hello, Eric. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? You're doing very well because I know your, your holidays start quite soon as well, don't they? With a great trip planned. But look, um, we have so much going on. Um, I thought yesterday and this week has been unbelievably fascinating and we haven't even mentioned stuff like the Philly Fed or the initial jobless claims which came dramatically forward. The central bank action, the inflation action, the retail sales action. I'm going to give you a free hit at this one. What do you want to talk about? Okay well there's I mean there's so much going on but you know the most remarkable thing to me is that for example in the United States this year we have seen more interest rate increases this year than in any other year since 1981. Wow. Um, and the same thing in Europe. We, you have to go back decades to see more interest rate increases from either the ECB or the Bank of England um, in a single calendar year. But what's really remarkable is despite all these interest rate increases, their policy rates are still below their respective rates of inflation. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think your reference to 1981 is, is stunningly well made and actually put the ball on the tee for me to say, look, the inflation episode or episodes we saw in the 70s, which everyone has been dusting off their books on, not least Mr. Powell, of course, started in 1973-1974 and finished in 1982. So interesting that the last flurry of activity on interest rates to this magnitude ended just before the end of the inflation shock of the 70s and 80s as well. What parallels can we learn from that period that says actually central bankers are either now doing the right thing or not doing the right thing? Okay, so this is really complicated. So one indication that they're maybe not yet doing the right thing is the fact that they still have negative real interest rates, meaning that those interest rates are below the rate of inflation. For much of the late 60s and early even mid-70s, policy rates were below inflation, and so inflation just kept accelerating. Um, But there is another side to the story. There's one huge difference between economies today and the economies of 40 or 45 years ago, and that's the level of debt. Back in the 1970s and early 80s, the U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio for public and private sector was 130%. Now in the U.S. and Europe, we have closer to 260-270% debt-to-GDP ratios. So the economies are massively leveraged. And that's why I think interest rate markets are so nervous about this policy tightening. Mm. I, I agree with you. And, and this channel, uh, sorry, this show specifically has worried about those debt levels ever since the great financial crisis. Because whilst they may have mildly come down in some jurisdictions across Europe, they've only gone up as well. And and add that to the fact that the APP, and just to pick out one piece of this enormous data smorgasbord that we've been talking about, the Europeans are now saying that at the moment they're saying we're going to be tough. And the days of us propping up debt markets, sovereign debt markets, uh, that is not going to happen. We're actually going to cut some of our support with the APP reduction of our balance sheet as well. Does that worry you that actually there's another shoe to drop in terms of the sovereign I was going to say crisis, but the, the broader bond market performance in 2023 and what happens? Oh, absolutely. It does worry me. It worries me a great deal because, you know, first of all, when countries, irrespective of whether it's the US, UK or the euro area, uh, when interest rates are at zero or close to zero, it actually doesn't matter so much how high your debt levels are because you can finance it for free. 
But now that interest rates are going up, it's going to be a big problem. So you look at the Eurozone. A Eurozone debt levels are really fascinating. So since the last Eurozone debt crisis 10 years ago, um, certain countries, notably Portugal, Spain, and Ireland, have massively deleveraged. But there's a couple countries, especially France, that have massively leveraged up. You know, the French total debt to GDP comes to 350% of GDP. You have 100% in the public sector, 250% in the private sector. France is one of the most indebted countries in the world after Japan. Can I jump in there? Because I find that fascinating. And actually, we've got two of our correspondents in uh, Paris at the moment for the Conference de Paris, where they're talking to a lot of policymakers. And I agree with you. France could have potentially been the next shoe to drop in the great financial crisis. I hated the acronym people use, so I'm not going to use that one as well. But it was Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece and Spain. I, I, I'm never going to use that acronym. I think it's awful. But, but I think France could have been a large part of that. But there was a decision made, maybe in Brussels, maybe in Frankfurt, maybe in Berlin, to actually not let the French become part of that as well because of the contagion concerns. Is there a different attitude this time around, do you think? Well, you know, I think you know, going back to that, so... Yeah, 20 years ago, French debt level to GDP was 180% of GDP. Wow, 180%. Yeah, at the time of the beginning of the global financial crisis, it was close to the Eurozone average around 230%. So in this last decade, while everyone deleveraged, France leveraged up. And so they actually had an outperforming economy, but largely because there was a lot of borrowing going on in the government sector, households, corporations. Um, so if this time is different for France, I think it's a different of fundamentals and not of politics. But, look, I don't want to beat up on France. I love France. I love many French people. I've got French friends as well. I worked for the French for five years as well. But, but it's a complete failure from Sarkozy. We can forget about Hollande because it came from a different part of the particular political spectrum. But Sarkozy uh, and then Macron so far to actually rein in that public sector debt as well. Now, I, I, I think they're mitigating factors for Monsieur Macron. We've had un, un, unprecedented crises as well, but it's still a worrying failure to carry out what they plan to do, both of those presidents. Well, you know, I, I, look, I, I love France as well. And to be, to be perfectly upfront, I'm a dual US and French citizen. So, yeah. you know, I feel very connected to France and I want the country to succeed and <laughs> do well. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I do think that, you know, again, it's, a, it's something that goes beyond politics. There is just a tremendous leveraging up of the private sector in particular. You know, French household debt uh, 20 or 30 years ago was extremely low. You know, the French people just didn't like taking out mortgage loans and credit cards. And now they've become more like everyone else. They've yeah. become more like the Americans and the Brits, et cetera, in terms of in Canadians and Australians, in terms of just accepting more leverage. And that's fine when interest rates are zero. Uh, but when interest rates start moving up and moving up rapidly, the cost of financing that becomes an issue. So very interesting. Last question on France, because I haven't actually had a, a long conversation about France debt levels for a long time. So we, we know where Italy is. It's 150% debt GDP. It's worrying. We know where Greece is. It is 180% debt GDP. It's worrying as well. But France is the one for you in 2023 that could be problematic. I think in 2023 and 2024, it's going to be very, very interesting to watch. And you look at countries that previously experienced financial crises, you know, like Spain or Ireland. Um, and what happened in those countries is very interesting. The uh, problems began in the private sector. You know, in Ireland and Spain, the problems began in the private sector. And then at some point, the public sector was asked to bail out the private sector. I'm not saying this is going to happen in France or any other country, but there are countries like France, Finland, and Belgium that have taken on very high levels of leverage. And so as the ECB tightens policy, it could become a concern. I, I think that's 
fascinating that you've singled out France, Belgium and Finland when historically all we've done is concentrate on, on the club med, so to speak. OK, I want to go back to the States if I can. Um, well, I'd love to go back to the States, but I'm, I'm staying here. But, 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 but in terms of what we've seen, I, I mentioned at the market and I mentioned about the stacking of crises and the market really confused about which one's going to go away. Inflation, a bit better than it was, but the rates and the sales and recession concerns, they're all there as well. What's your view on specifically how you see the U.S. economy panning out in early 2023? Okay, so my fear for the U.S. economy is that inflation is going to prove a bit stickier than people think. Yeah. Um, it is true we've had a couple decent inflation numbers, which is nice. Um, but, you know, 30% of CPI is rent and owner's equivalent rent. Um, that has now accelerated to a 7% year-on-year rate of increase from 5% six months ago. Um, and so the problem in the U.S. is mortgage rates have gone from 3% to 7%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's forced a lot of would-be buyers into the rental market, which has an exceptionally low, historically low vacancy rate. Um, so there's a lot of people competing for a very limited supply of rental properties. You know, and if we have 7% inflation in rents, and that's 30% of the index, that gets you to 2% inflation before you've taken into account Hang on, the, the other 70%. Is, I know we've got to wrap up, but set the, the rental side of the market is, is what percent of the index? 30%? It's about 30%. So it's, it's complicated. So there's, yeah. there's, there's seven per, about 7 or 8% of the index is just rents in a simple yeah. sense. Like yeah. I rent my apartment, I'd be part of that index. Imagine you own your home and I'm your next door neighbor yeah. and I'm a renter. So if my rent goes up 10%, the statisticians conclude that you are now as an owner paying yourself 10% more rent. And this owner's equivalent rent is now 24% of the index. It's huge. Yeah. That is huge. And that also, skews the whole picture, doesn't it? Yeah, and in addition to that, you have wages growing at 4 to 5% and very little productivity growth. I think this kind of puts the U.S. maybe, uh, you know, maybe at risk of inflation that's going to be significantly above what the bond market price is early in the year. Well, you know what? The exciting thing is, it's going to remain exciting, and we will find out in 2023. So, look, have a great holiday period, um, and we'll see you early next year. Thank you very nice much. Nice to see you, Eric. Um, Eric Norland, Executive Director and Senior Economist over at the CME Group. And coming up on the show, EU leaders, oh dear, how many times have I read this? The next couple of words, EU leaders fail to strike a deal. On this occasion, it's about the gas price cap, but announce further aid for Ukraine. We'll cross live to Brussels next. And the podcast, well, for more on the, I love this word, Central Bank Smorgasbord. Oh, you've got to love the Swedes for that, haven't you? Uh, this week and what the rate outlook will be for 2023, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Right, welcome back to Scorebox. EU leaders have signed off on a new sanctions package against Russia over its war in Ukraine at the final summit of the year. Leaders also discussed a joint European response to the US Inflation Reduction Act, but there was still no agreement 
on a gas price cap. Well, Sylvia um, joins us with more. You're outside. I've just checked the weather. I think it's zero. I've got to be honest, it's a bit milder than, uh, or very cold, but milder than uh, the minus nine in my car this morning. Um, so, Sylvia, um, has the uh, Brussels summit warmed you up with joy about their, uh, their resolution, their joint action? Uh, that's a tough one to answer, Steve, because in the end, this was not, let's say, the most significant summit of the year. That's the reality, really, because there were a lot of topics on the table, as we discussed yesterday. But in the end, very, very little concrete measure. So let me start with the discussion on trade, because we've mentioned before how the Europeans are concerned about the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, how this poses a threat to investment in Europe, to European companies as well. And in this sense, the, the, the detail that came out of the summit is actually very, very little. They just said in their joint statement that they had a strategic discussion on this topic. However, though, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, she did announce that she's going to put forward a proposal to relax state aid rules in Europe at the start of January. Let's take a look at what else she had to say late last night. We are working with the Biden administration on the most concerning aspects of the IRA. Second, we have to adjust our own state aid rules for some years, simpler, faster, and even more predictable. Third, we need to boost European investment to accelerate the energy transition. In the short term, this will happen through a reinforced Repower EU, and in the medium term, through a new sovereignty fund. Let me focus now on energy, though, because we know that this was undoubtedly the biggest topic for the leaders throughout 2022. And I have to say that there was frustration here in Brussels yesterday among some of the heads of state about how long it's taking the EU to come up with that key measure, the cap on natural gas prices. The 27 heads of state had agreed to do that in late October and essentially two months down the line, there's still no agreement. So what the heads of state did last night, they put into writing that the ministers, the energy ministers, need to finalize these discussions on the 19th of December. So when the energy ministers come here to Brussels on Monday, that's their deadline to reach an agreement on a cap on natural gas prices. Let me show you what the French president, Emmanuel Macron, had to say about this and the overall energy crisis across Europe. We had technical discussions and we have defined the political framework that will allow our ministers to finalize the issue of gas price caps. A remarkable job has been done to finalize this by the 19th of December. And we have also acted on this being for me the most important and the most structuring and acceleration of our joint purchases, especially those of medium and long-term contracts. So the French president there, Emmanuel Macron. Now, it's important to keep in mind, though, that the heads of state were never meant to reach an agreement at yesterday's summit when it comes to this cap on gas prices. However, though, what they did was to put this additional pressure on their energy minister. So all eyes now, Steve, is on that meeting on Monday to see indeed where this cap is going to sit. OK, brilliant. Look, we're going to park that part, even though there's two amazing, really interesting stories you've already covered. There's more interesting ones as well, including the inter 
Continental Exchange. Uh, ICE has reportedly warned EU member states that it may pull its gas trading market from the Netherlands if the EU goes ahead with its proposed gas price cap. Now, multiple reports cited an ICE memo sent to EU members which said a cap would place greater strain on the market. It's basically talking about the huge margin requirements. Uh, ICE operates the Dutch Title Transfer Facility, or TTF, which is Europe's main exchange for trading and setting the price of gas. Now, yet another interesting story uh, surrounding Brussels. Worries on corruption scandals around Qatari money into Brussels also loomed over the final council meeting this year. The EU has suspended all works linked to Qatar amid ongoing criminal corruption investigation. Um, Let's circle back to Sylvia in Brussels for more on this. Sylvia. So, in essence, it's important to bear in mind that this is just really the start of this scandal. So this emerged on Sunday, and we're still trying to figure out what's going to happen when it comes to this specific investigation. Having said that, it's natural that all eyes when it comes to this are on the European Parliament. And having said that as well, the president of the European Parliament, she announced yesterday that they are reviewing certain procedures within the works of the European Parliament to make sure that these scandals do not happen, to make sure that there's no corruption involving European lawmakers. But if we take a step back, this story, Steve, is all about the reputation of the EU. And this is what concerns every single official here in Brussels. Whether you look at the European Parliament, the European Council, the European Commission, this could affect every single European institution. And the leaders here yesterday, the heads of state, were asked about this scandal by the press when they arrived here in Brussels. So there's quite a lot of interest, there's quite a lot of attention on this scandal. And let's not forget that the European Union is not far from new parliamentary elections. European voters will head to the polls in 2024 and this scandal could also have repercussions on how the Europeans vote, whether they will actually go to the polls as well. So there's a lot at stake here, not just in order to understand how the Belgian authorities are going to answer, how they're going to finalize this investigation, but also on the European institutions. How far are they going to go to reform the systems here in Brussels? And of course, in the medium term, what sort of implications this could have for all of the European institutions? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.